life of Joseph, which was not the oldest son of Jacob. Actually, he was the 11th son of Jacob. The Bible says in uh, Genesis chapter number 15, uh, 50, I'm sorry, and verse number 15. This is at the end of the story, the amazing story of Joseph's life. It says, and when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, Jacob was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespasses of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. I want you to notice here and take note that Joseph's brethren are completely asking for Joseph's forgiveness. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of thy servants, of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, as for you, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass, as it is this day, to save much people alive. I like that verse. He said, ye thought evil against me. You were trying to hurt me. But God meant it unto good. To bring to pass that we see this day that many people are saved Alive Now, therefore, fear not. I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Beautiful, beautiful part, the culmination of the story of Joseph's uh, just mind-boggling legacy. And, and, and the story of his life was his forgiveness. First of all, his brothers having such a change of heart that they requested forgiveness of him. And Joseph to completely forgive them of an egregious wrong that was done against him that affected his life and brought so much unspeakable pain into his life. And this is one of the most beautiful elements of this story. And so today we're talking about Joseph's journey uh, from his father's house to a pit, to a prison, and finally to a palace. And how God worked through his life and what we can learn from the life of Joseph today. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your presence and your power and your anointing. And we ask today, Lord Jesus, that you would speak in the next few moments to us from your word. Bring hope and encouragement to lives today, we pray in the precious name of Jesus. And if you agree and believe that, just shout amen right now. Amen. Now, here, here's, here's what I want. I need some people that are going to help me read Bible verses. So if you have a Bible and you're willing to read, stay standing. If you either don't have a Bible or you're not willing to read aloud, you may be seated. All right. Okay, we do have some readers. Uh-oh, the number is diminishing here. All right, so I'm going to uh, give you Scripture verses, and I want you to look them up and hold them for me, because as we uh, study tonight, we're going to be looking at these verses. All right. First of all, sister, I want you 
to look up Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 12. If we had a Bible quizzer here, they might be able to quote it for us without looking it up. <laughs> Proverbs 10 and 12. Um, Brother Ulysses, I want you to look up two. They're in the same place. First John. First John chapter 2, verse 9. And then First John chapter 3, verse 15. You take note of that. Uh, uh, 2, 9 and 3, 15. 2, 9 and 3, 15. Uh, Brother Charlie, Second Timothy, chapter two, verse number twenty-two. Brother Michael, Proverbs twenty-five, verse number twenty-eight. Sister, Hebrews chapter six, and verse number twelve. Hebrews six twelve. Brother Valentino, Romans chapter number 5, verses 3 and 4. Brother Eric, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. All right. And uh, Brother Geddes, you're off the hook. God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you so much. As we come to these verses, we'll just, uh, I'll call out the verse, so remember where you are, uh, who, what it is that you have uh, looked up. In, in the book of Genesis, as we've studied from the very beginning of this study, we see that, uh, number one, that it is the seedbed of all major Bible doctrines. All the major teachings of the Bible are foreshadowed or rooted in the book of Genesis. The second thing that we have noticed during our study is that through the stories and the narratives in the book of Genesis, number one, we're learning things that relate to us today. But secondly, we notice that it's pointing towards where we are today in terms of New Testament salvation. New Testament salvation, the cross of Jesus Christ, uh, the redemptive plan of, of Jesus is foreshadowed in the book of Genesis. And uh, we talked about how Isaac and Ishmael represented, Ishmael represented the flesh. Isaac represents our spiritual nature. All of these things were uh, uh, foreshadowed in these stories of the patriarchs. Abraham illustrated God's divine election that uh, God reached for us. God called us out. God signaled us out. Jacob shows us the conflict between the two natures, the new nature and the old nature, and how God disciplined Jacob, slowly bringing him to a point where his, his uh, spirit triumphed over the flesh. And last week in uh, our, our time of study together, uh, we saw that uh, in the end, Jacob, who had trusted his flesh and his ingenuity and his creativity and his uh, know-how for his whole life, had to finally come to the end of himself so that he could learn how to truly trust God and lean on God. And we talked about God's patience in that process and how that we're in a similar process. And what we learn from the life of Joseph as we study tonight is that we have a great inheritance that is available to us, but that oftentimes it is going to be preceded by suffering, by going through difficulty by experiencing disappointment, 
by finding ourselves, not just for a day or two, but sometimes for a long period of time, not understanding why life has put us in the place that we're in. But ultimately, the life of Joseph shows us that there is coming a time when we will rule and reign. Just like Joseph finally reached that position, that heightened position with uh, Pharaoh, the day will come when you and I, with all of our foibles and all of our weaknesses and shortcomings and mistakes and issues, will rule and reign with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. Because through the process of time, through the suffering, through the difficulty, through the disappointments, He's working on us. He's perfecting us. He's working all things together for our good. And man, I'm telling you, you take the most beautiful masterpiece of art, whether it's a tapestry where the various colors are woven together, and you see the beautiful picture that required so much planning and foresight and a creative genius to pull it together in these woven tapestries. And you multiply that by a million And this is, number one, what we see in the Word of God, but number two, it's what we see in our lives. How God is weaving in and out of our lives colors and things and circumstances and situations and exciting things and disappointments. Why? Because He is creating something beautiful. And we can't see the picture right now. Sometimes we're on the wrong side because if you get on a tapestry and look at it from the other direction... All you see are hanging threads and knots. But you turn it around and you see a beautiful picture. Amen. Because the events of our life were not intended to be understood, torn from their context and viewed in isolation. But when you put them all together, all things work together, praise God, for the good of them that love Him, who are the call according to His purpose. Amen. I love birthday cake, but I'd hate to have to eat all the ingredients of the birthday cake one at a time. Boiled eggs and flour and baking soda and sugar and all of that. But when you mix the events together and then you put them in the oven for some time, after the time, all things are baked together into something that's delightful. And when we try to understand our life, why is this situation so salty right now? Why is this situation so bitter right now? Why is this situation like this? It's it's a lack of understanding how God's providence weaves everything together for our good. Why would I ever wrestle? Why, Why would God ever want to wrestle with me? Maybe He needs to bring me to the end of myself because the great things He has for me in my life. Come on now. So that means even people that try to hurt you may be helping you and they don't even realize it. The Bible says in in one place that uh, God had to hire an opposing nation to do war with Israel to chastise or correct Israel. Because why? Because God hated Israel? Because God loved Israel. Because all things work together for good to those that love the Lord, to those that are the called according to His purpose. So one thing to understand is God's fulfillment of His purpose in our life, if it's great, it's going to be probably preceded by some great suffering, some injustices, some things that are 
very difficult to figure out because suffering comes before glories. And Joseph is the last of the patriarchs. And of the seven great men mentioned in Scripture, Adam, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Joseph is the seventh. He's the last. And he is the one to whom more square footage of writing space is dedicated than any of the others. His story takes up more of the book of Genesis in terms of volume of words than any of the others. There are some reasons. Number one is that Joseph is the essential link between Genesis and Exodus. If we jump right into Exodus without the story of Joseph, we don't understand what they're doing in Egypt. We don't understand how it happened. And so he gives us this important link of how God's people went from the promised land into Egypt. But I think the main reason why so much space is taken in the life of Joseph is that Joseph's life describes in great detail the life of Jesus Christ. And uh, we, for the sake of time, will not delve deeply into this, but there are over 100 comparisons between the life of Joseph and the life of Jesus Christ. We could do a lesson for weeks. Y'all probably get boring, and most of you quit coming like some of the others quit. Uh, if we went through the all 100... But, uh, uh, but it's, it's fascinating to realize that God was preparing the children of Israel, preparing us for the main event, the main event, the Mayweather-Pacquiao fight. All the others are just leading up to it. And then that one was a disappointment, from what I understand. The big fight, the main event. What is the main event? The main event is Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose. That's what creation was created for. The plan of the the birth and the crucifixion of Christ predated Adam's creation. It was all created by him and for him. And so, as we understand this, we realize that all of these uh, foreshadows of Jesus Christ in the life of Joseph are significant so that, the, so that his people would recognize already that through Joseph, Jesus Christ is typified. There's several things that, uh, uh, that uh, could be mentioned with regards to that. There's a couple we'll mention, but uh, we're not going to mention 100 of them. One of the things that's interesting is even his name. His name was Joseph. Why did his dad name him Joseph? Joseph means add another one, add another one, add another one. And then God did it. Benjamin, my right arm. Joseph means add another one. Well, what's Jesus' purpose? That he might be the firstborn among many brethren? Jesus died, buried, was rose again so that there would be another one that would die, be buried, and rise again. And that's you and I. Jesus Christ came so that we could be added to the kingdom of God. His whole purpose was to add another son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. That's you and me. Praise God. Beloved, now are you the sons of God. It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when we see him we shall be like him. Isn't that awesome that he was the firstborn and we are uh, those that were... Uh, born after him, born again of the Spirit. So as you look at the life of, uh, at the story of Joseph, 
there's three levels you could look at it. First of all, when you read the story of Joseph, it's a fascinating piece of literature. I mean, uh, have you heard that before? Fact sometimes is is more uh, fascinating even than fiction. Like you couldn't make up a story that was more amazing and mind-boggling than the life of Joseph. And it appears over and over and over again in human literature, pointing back to this beautiful story of the life of Joseph. The various wrinkles and the characters and so forth in this story are uh, powerful as a piece of literature. But if you go deeper to a second level, you see that there are profound theological implications. You begin to see the hand of God uh, in evidence throughout the entire story. God creates this hero that that God uses him to save his family, and then God creates this nation that's going to bless the entire world, and he starts by blessing the world through the saving of Egypt and the saving through the famine of all the people because Joseph is in the right position. And uh, we see again the heart of a covenant-making God who is going to keep his promises even though it seems like it's not going to happen. So in the story, there are theological implications. And at the third level is what we just mentioned, which is the illustration of Jesus Christ, how that Joseph is a type of Christ. It's amazing because all the other individuals in Scripture that we read much about their life, even the heroes of faith, we discover that there are ugly sins in their life as well. David, Moses, Abraham, Jacob. But when you read the story of Joseph, you don't see any of this. You see no flaws or faults in his character. Why? Because he's a type of Christ. You guys get that? He's a type of Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only one who was sinless. So we see very quickly uh, these things that illustrate that uh, Jesus Christ was being foreshadowed by this character named Joseph. Number one, he was beloved by his father and obedient to his father. Just like Jesus said, not my will, but thine be done. uh, Joseph was hated by his brethren. Didn't do him any wrong. He just had favor on his life. Jesus was hated by the Jews, though he did no wrong, but he was favored by his father. Joseph was sold sold as a slave and falsely accused and unjustly punished. Jesus Christ also falsely accused, unjustly punished, imprisoned. And then finally, Joseph was elevated from suffering to a powerful throne. Jesus Christ was elevated through suffering to a powerful throne. Joseph ultimately saved his people from death. And Jesus Christ ultimately will save us from eternal death through his suffering on the cross. So you see here that uh, this third level, uh, which I said we could spend a lot of time focusing on, is how Joseph is a type of Jesus Christ. But we're going to move away from that and go back to the story of this boy who was born in a home where there were a lot of sons. The problem was there were also lots of mamas. There was Leah. There was there, there was uh, Rachel. There was the two handmaidens. Anybody remember their names? 
Bilhah and the other one slipped me. But I don't feel bad because it looks like it slipped you all too. Maybe, yeah, but you're the pastor. You're supposed to remember all that stuff. Zilpha, very good. These two handmaidens, and uh, as we taught last week or the week before, although there was no uh, biblical mandate against polygamy in this time, we see from the illustration of their life all the problems, division, hatred, animosity, that was a result of this, which later became a scriptural principle that a husband is to have one wife. And so this 11th born son in the household of Israel, or Jacob, was born into a problematic household. From the time he was young and began to grow up, issues conspired against him so that he experienced hatred. He was hated. There was no unity in the home. It was a house that was divided. And and the Bible teaches about the beauty of unity and and how that it's pleasing to God. And uh, how how that it uh, predates the, the flow of anointing. But there was no unity in the household of Jacob. We see that uh, some things happen. Joseph has dreams. Joseph is granted a coat of many colors, a beautiful garment that distinguishes him from his brothers. And other things along the way that give his brothers a sense that he is the favored son. These things happen and they produce hatred in the heart, hearts of the brethren against Joseph. Another thing, Joseph had integrity. And when his brothers were doing something wrong, he reported their wrongdoing to his father. Now, was he just being a teenage tattletale? No, I believe that with his discernment and integrity, which shows up over and over and over in his life, he knew that his father would not be pleased, and it was information that he needed. Now, when we look at Jacob, Jacob showed favoritism toward Joseph, and all the brothers recognized it. If anybody should have known how bad it felt for your brother to be favored over you, it should have been Jacob. Because Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. He knew what it felt like for a father to love one son more than another. He should have known better. He should have known what that would stir up in the heart of the other brethren from his own experience. And when he granted to Joseph this beautiful rich garment of many colors. He wouldn't need that as a shepherd. That wasn't a shepherd's garment. What he was doing, most Bible scholars agree that what he was doing was he was letting the family know and letting the brethren know that Joseph was the one that was chosen to be his heir, even though he was not the firstborn son. Jacob felt like he had a right to do this. Why do you think he would feel like he had a right to choose his 11th son as the heir instead of what was expected, which was the first son whose name was Reuben. Why? Because Joseph was the firstborn son of Rachel, who he had selected to be his wife and worked for her and then had been deceived by his father-in-law Laban and got stuck with Leah, who was a nice enough girl. 
but he didn't love her. Leah was hated, her womb was open, and, and, and in reality what's awesome is that even though she was hated, the promised seed comes through Leah. Judah was born through Leah. Jesus Christ's lineage goes through Leah, not Rachel. Leah, the one that was hated. But Jacob felt like, since Rachel was my selected wife, she's my love. She's who I worked for. She's, she's the one I, I agreed to marry. That her child should be the heir. And so when Joseph was born, he fell in love with this son even more than the others. Because he was the son of the one that he felt was his legitimate wife. But let's look at the other side of the coin. It's no surprise that the brothers hated him. See what I'm saying? He, he had the favor of the father just because of who his mom was. And uh, if uh, uh, on Mother's Day we, we remember how much we love our mothers and how much we fight for and protect our mother. Actually, his favor of Joseph was a slap to their mother, not just to them, but to their mother. And so there was hatred that was allowed to be generated there. The problem is hatred stirs up other sins. Proverbs chapter 10 and uh, verse 12 shows us that hatred doesn't end with hatred. Go ahead. Hatred stirs up quarrels, love covers offenses. Hatred stirs up more problems. It stirs up negative and ugly things. And it wasn't just going to stop with his feeling with his brothers having bad feelings against him because the ultimate destination of hatred is what? Murder. Murder. That's why the Bible says when Jesus was um showing the, 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 the new way in the kingdom through the Beatitudes and so forth. He was like, you guys observe the law. But in the Beatitudes, it's more than just observing the law. It goes a step further. He says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say unto you, thou shalt not have anger or hatred against your brother without a cause. Because anger and hatred ultimately leads to murder. It doesn't stop with just hatred. Uh, Brother Ulysses, can you read the, the 1 John 2 and 9 and then 1 John 3.15? He that saith he loveth God, he says in the light and hateth his brother, is in darkness. So, is he lying or is he deceived? He's deceived. He thinks he's in the light. But if there's hatred against a brother, then you are not in the light as you would assume. First John 3.15. Look, look at what the Bible says. The Bible says, if I hate my brother, and for those of you that are like, I'm cool with my brothers, or you're like, I only got sisters, I don't even have any brothers, so we're good. The Bible's not talking about your flesh and blood. It's talking about your brother in Christ. If you, whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer. This is like taking that 
law to the next level. That's why, like Jesus said, if you lust against someone in your heart, you're an adulterer. Ouch. He says, if you hate your brother, you are a murderer. And no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. This lets us know that there is no place in the life of a believer for hatred. Can I get an amen right now? And so their hatred was also coupled with envy. Envy is ugly. When you see someone else favored, when you see someone else blessed, when you see that someone else has the life that maybe that you wish that you could have, or somebody else is recognized for accomplishing something and something stirs up in you. And I've seen it make a mess in the church. I'm telling you. I've seen envy make a mess in a church because envy has a twin sister called malice. Not Alice. Malice. What is envy? Envy is this emotional condition that causes inward pain when we see others succeed. You guys with me? Envy. Talk, talk about turning green with envy. Something in you is nauseated. Something in you hurts when you see others succeed. Now, what is malice? Malice is kind of the opposite. It produces inward satisfaction when you see others fail. When you see others fail and you feel kind of a, a, a little bit excited about their failure. And these sisters, envy and malice, lead people to slander and criticism. Slander is to speak ill against a brother. Criticism is to find fault and pick away. What is the almost every time you see slander and criticism, at the root of it are these twin sisters. Envy and malice. And this is what happens even with the brethren of, uh, of Joseph. Because their brother is favored, this inward envy and malice begins to grow, and it ultimately leads, this hatred, envy, and malice leads to violence. And uh, growing hatred is like murder. I know that the brothers never really murdered Joseph, but I'm pretty sure a lot of them had done it in their heart. How do you know that? Because they were talking about killing him. You don't talk about it if you hadn't thought about it. You don't start hatching a plan unless it's been in your heart. They wanted to kill him. Why? Because of hatred, envy, malice. It led to violence. Violence. The, the, the end result of hatred, anger, is murder. Now, you may say, well, I would never kill anybody. I, I would never take a gun or a knife to somebody. But you will try to murder their reputation. You try to uh, do devastation to a person's good name. It's the same root cause that leads to this fruit of violence. And so it's important for us as believers to recognize that this is the human condition, but we can't allow it to be in us uh, because we're new creatures in Jesus Christ and now we're in the body of Christ uh, and we are to love our brothers and prefer our brothers and honor our brothers and if we do not, the Bible says there is no light in us. 
Is that straight enough? Amen. And so instead of killing him, they threw him into a pit. And uh, he was in the pit, and you can imagine he had been sent by his father to check on his brothers. They seized the opportunity. Let's get him back. Let's, let's take care of the dreamer who has these dreams of greatness, grandiose dreams. And uh, uh, he, he's uh, dad's favorite. And uh, he, he's a tattletale. Let, let's take care of him. They threw him into a pit. They talked of killing him, but Reuben, the oldest, said, no, we can't do that. We can't have his blood on our hands. And so they threw him into the pit. And then when Reuben was away, along came a caravan uh, of, uh, that, that were heading, Ishmaelites, heading to Egypt. And they said, hey, let's get rid of our brother like once and for all. Let's sell him into slavery because once he becomes a slave, how will he ever get out of it? I mean, he has no money. He's, he, no, no alibi. They don't have telephone. He can't send an email. I mean, he's gone. And so they sell him into slavery, and he leaves bound hand and feet on the way to Egypt. And the brothers are there, and they say, now what do we tell Dad? Well, before they left, they, before they threw him in the pit, they stripped him of his coat. This coat of distinction, this coat that showed the favor that was upon him. They stripped him of the coat, they tore it, and they dipped it in the blood of a goat. And they sent a servant to deliver it to their father, their father Jacob, Israel, to say, we found this. I don't know what happened, but it sure looks like you fill in the blanks. And guess what Jacob said when when the bloody coat was dropped at his feet? He said, surely a wild beast has torn my beloved son, and I'm never going to see him again. Probably been eaten. And uh, I'm going to go down to my grave mourning the life of Joseph. Now, here's the deal. Like, when we read the story, it's just like, oh, this is fun, this is exciting, wow, wow, wow. But can you imagine living in the story and being that dad who your son that you waited for that finally was born of Rachel from a womb that was barren, finally the birth came, and uh, he was sharp, he was attractive like his mother, he uh, had intuition, he, he had all the marks of greatness, and he was certainly the legacy bearer, you could sense it, and then all of a sudden they show up, and they have his coat, and it's bloody and torn, and here's the deal, he accepted that evidence as proof that his son was dead. But the whole time, his son was alive. Joseph was alive. He was on a caravan heading to Egypt. But in the meantime, Pop said, my son is dead. I, I, I tell you what, th- this is the way the enemy works a lot of times. He will create evidence to give us a certain impression and hope that we swallow it and start living our lives in light of the evidence that he's dropped at our feet. Start making decisions. Start allowing our emotions to be affected by the evidence that he drops at our feet. 
You know, I love this. Have you heard, heard this before? This is the definition of fear. False evidence appearing real. False evidence appearing as real. And this is what happened that day when the, 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 uh, the bloody coat was dropped at the feet of Pops, is Israel. He says, surely my son has been torn by wild beasts. And the whole time he was alive. But instead, he goes on living his life in mourning as if he was dead. Sometimes, I, I don't know if you've ever done it before, but you get these sense or feeling, well, she don't like me. I'm finna lose my job. Or um, God's not really forgiven me, and, and, and he's not going to bless me. And these different kinds of thoughts get in our mind. And the problem is, is when you accept it, when you embrace it, when you swallow it, like Jacob swallowed the story of the bloody coat. They didn't even tell him, as I read the passage, he's the one that draws the conclusion from the evidence that's presented to him. He draws the negative conclusion and starts living his life based on the conclusion. And that's what Satan would love to do, to get you fearful, to get you uh, uh, discouraged, to get you to believe that a certain thing has happened or is going to happen, and you start living. And we preach Sunday that the only way you can have blessings from God is to make room for it through faith and positive expectation. We, we, we need to learn to be better at faith and worse at fear. We're really good at fear. We make room for negative expectations, right? Why do we do that? I think it's because we don't want to be disappointed. We don't want to get our hopes up. And so we create these negative expectations like, there ain't no way the Clippers can beat San Antonio. They're not going to win. This series is over. I know I shouldn't have gone there. I'm being silly. Having fun. We create negative expectations, and it's a space we can fall into as a hammock, a safety net, when things don't go the way that we had hoped they had gone. But I believe God wants us to get our hopes up. He wants us to believe that God is able, that God is going to do good things in our life. And when bad things happen, He can make, take and, and, and bring good things out of bad things. Amen? He, he can take something sweet and bring it out of something bitter. Praise the Lord. Amen. Jacob said, all things are against me. You can read it in Genesis. Jacob and in the meantime, all things were working together for the good of him. See, because if Joseph wasn't sold into slavery, his family was going to starve in a famine. And the promised seed that was in the loins of Judah would have been wiped out. But I'm so thankful, praise God, I'm so thankful that even in the midst of a difficult situation that looked like the most uh, uh, disparaging situation that could ever happen in life, God was at work. Anybody glad that God's at work even in the difficult things, even when things seem to be against you? That's a great God, isn't it? That, that's a great, that's a powerful God. That, that, that's a God whose ways are above our ways and His thinking is above our thinking. Amen? He's a God that's so great He can work His purposes when people are doing wrong. People do their worst and God's still working His purpose. 
you need evidence of that, just look at the Calvary. Look at the cross. They're doing their worst, and God is working his purpose right in the middle of it. Let's just give him praise because he's a great God. And God's providence is awesome. I think it would do your faith good to go back to Genesis and read chapters 30 through 50 again. Just to recognize the power of God's providence. Because if you're in a, set, in a difficult set of circumstances and you're, and you're becoming discouraged and you're feeling like giving up and you're feeling like God's against you or you're feeling like maybe God doesn't even exist because don't, none of this makes sense. When you're in that place, realize that God's sovereignty is awesome. And he is an amazing artist. And his most precious work, hallelujah, is you and me. The Bible says, ye are his masterpieces. What's a masterpiece? A masterpiece is the top work of art. Is the, the work of art that, that, that they spent the most time on. And so when you think about that, that you and I, are his workmanship, is what the Bible says. It means a masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which he had planned before anything happened, before you were born, before you were even thought of. God had good works planned. Come on, guys, you got to get. He had good works planned for you, and your life is a masterpiece. Every bit of pressure, every ebb and flow, and in God's greatness, He can take bad and turn it into good in your life because He's working all things out together for your good. Amen. That ought to be a great source of encouragement when you're in the midst of difficult circumstances to realize, I don't understand it right now. I probably won't understand it tomorrow. I may never understand it, but I do know one thing. I trust that God is going to take this and turn it into something that brings glory to His name and is to for my good. And when uh, Joseph arrived into Egypt, He brought the favor that was on his life with him to Egypt, to the household of Potiphar, to the prison he was in, and finally to the palace of Pharaoh. And his favor that was on his life blessed the entire land of Egypt and the surrounding areas that were saved from the grievous famine that God had prepared and scheduled. Just think about this. Even the difficult circumstances in Joseph's life was a preparation. Because what if he'd have just stayed at home? What if he'd have just stayed at home in his father's house as a pampered kid? Everybody doing what he said. He's the one in charge. You know, you ever been around them rich kids that are real spoiled? Like, they're not going to change the world. They're not going to do anything great. Their mom and dad might have. Biggest problem sometimes with success is your success makes it difficult for you to allow your kids to go through what it's going to take to make them a success, just like you had to go through the school of hard knocks. And you protect the children from the school of hard knocks that's going to make them somebody great. And by this time, Israel's a very wealthy man. He's got lots of stuff, he's got prominence in the land. And if Joseph had stayed there, 
I don't know what kind of character he would have ended up with. But he went somewhere. God took him somewhere through a set of circumstances and put him to a place where he had to work hard and he had to obey orders. He had to work hard and he had to obey orders. Why? Because God had a job for him. And when when God is guiding us, he will give us a job and he will give us people to obey. We learn character this way. He's going to test us as a servant before he promotes us to be rulers. And Joseph could never be the ruler that God had scheduled for him to be. To do the job that God had planned for him to do. If he was a spoiled kid in daddy's house, pampered, spoiled, rich, favored. Before you exercise authority, you have to be under authority and learn to obey. And Joseph learned to obey, because otherwise he'd get a whip on his back, because he was a slave. He learned to obey in the prison. He learned to obey along the way, praise God, because he was being set up for greatness. God knows what he's doing. Turn to somebody and say, God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's doing. And the great temptation of uh, his life came in Potiphar's house. When Potiphar's wife uh, was lustful towards him, he was a very attractive person, a sharp mind, great physique, handsome. And uh, she invited him to her bed. She was treating him like a slave. She was treating him like a thing instead of a person. And uh, this was Potiphar's wife. And it's beautiful because Joseph showed character under this situation and circumstances. It would have been so easy for him just to acquiesce. He's a young man. He's full of hormones like any other young man. He's got this wife of a wealthy individual. And if you were wealthy back then, you didn't marry ugly chicks. Right? You had the money. Right? And so Potiphar's wife, I don't think, was ugly. But she said, come, lie with me. And he had a great opportunity at that point to decide whether he was going to show character or not. And here's the deal. Who's going to know? Who's going to know? I mean, why would I honor God? He's the one that gives me a promise and then puts me in prison. I'm sorry, uh, in a pit, and then sends me in slavery. But he refused to do what was dishonorable to God and was dishonorable to his boss because he understood something that very few people in the world understand. And that is that sex outside of marriage is wrong, cheap, and demeaning. And people speak of love and you can see it on the, uh, the uh, um, romantic comedies and sitcoms and, and uh, basically what media and culture puts forth is a, a, is a resounding defense of sex outside of marriage. But the experience, though it's pleasurable, is wrong, cheap, and personally demeaning. 
See, I wish, I wish we could get this. I wish people could get this. Because fornication and adultery, fornication is sex outside of marriage. Adultery is if you're married and you have sex with someone else or if uh, uh, you have sex with somebody who is married. These two things change a pure river into a sewer. And it transforms free people into slaves and ultimately into animals. And so Joseph understood that this is more than just a momentary dalliance. This is more than something that God's just going to wink at. But this is about my character. This is about honoring God. This is about honoring myself. This is about honoring my boss, who the wife belongs to. And fornication and adultery turns sweetness into poison. And so what did he do on that day when she finally had sent all the servants out in a compromising moment, cornered him and said, come on. The Bible says that he got out of Dodge. He took off and she grabbed his coat. This is the second time that Joseph's coat is stripped from him. Grabs his coat as he runs out. And she's left holding his coat. Now, check it out. A lot of times running away is seen as cowardly. But in this case, running away was not cowardly. The Bible says in, in, in uh, who, who has Timothy, uh, is it First Timothy 2.22? Who has that passage? I think that's the one. Second Timothy 2.22. Yes, sir. All right, it says, flee youthful lusts, or flee fornication. Now, that's not talking about he flees like the little tiny fly. It's talking about run away, right? Because there are some things that we stand up to and fight, and there's some things that we just run and when you are young, and even when you're not so young, lust is not something to be entertained and like, okay, we'll box for a little while. I, I know I, I got the upper hand here. Boom, boom. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat this. Because some things are to be fought and other things are to be run away from. You know the old instinct thing they say, fight or flight? When it comes to youthful lust. The only proper approach is run away. And Joseph understood this. He understood that this was not something to wrestle with. Self-control is an important factor in building character and to prepare us to lead. Joseph was being taught self-control by defeating or running away from youthful lusts rather than acquiescing to the desire. Look at the difference between Joseph and Samson. Samson couldn't defeat youthful lust. Joseph fled youthful lust. They both were used by God, but Joseph died in the palace. Samson died under a pile of rubble. 
because it is powerful to learn the importance of self-control in this area of your life. Proverbs 25, 28. Read that again, real loud. Like a city whose walls are broken down is like a person who lacks self-control. What does that mean? That means uh, back in those days, cities had to have a wall to protect against invaders. And the wall would keep the invaders out. And so you would have a a city that would have peace and prosperity because the invaders couldn't make their way in. The Bible says here, makes this comparison, a person without self-control is like a city with no walls. And a city with no walls is vulnerable to anybody that wants to come in to steal, kill, and destroy. You can just come in. You can just have their way in the city. And so that's why it's important. What is self-control? Self-control is building walls. Creating barriers and boundaries and setting at distance those things which will ultimately destroy you, momentarily make you happy, but ultimately destroy. And this is why it's important in being what God wants you to be is to learn to practice self-control. If you agree with what I'm saying, shout amen. Amen. Joseph lost his garment for the second time, and even though he lost his coat, he kept is character. God was with Joseph. He was with Joseph when he was a slave, when he was a prisoner. And even when he was in the palace, God was with him. He had to learn to wait while he was in prison. He got thrown in prison because he was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife because she felt scorned by his rejection. Prison was the school where he learned to wait on the Lord until it was his time to vindicate him and to fulfill his dream. I'm pretty sure God's timing was not Joseph's timing. Joseph didn't want to stay two years in prison. I mean, that's a long, that's 24 months in prison for something he didn't do, and he's supposedly in the will of God. Supposedly God has a purpose and a plan for his life. It just looks like life is just throwing him all over the place, right? But learning to trust God is to realize that I'm not going to fight it I'm not going to resist it. I'm not going to try to figure it out if I don't want to blow my mind. I'm going to trust God. And I'm going to realize that He is working on my behalf. I'm going to hold on to my character. I'm going to do the right things. I'm going to do what I know that I need to do. But I am going to wait on the Lord because uh, one thing that Joseph realized, and I hope you get it, is that God's delays are not God's denials. Just because he doesn't answer right away doesn't mean that he is not going to answer. And there are a lot of people that have huge regrets because they rushed ahead of God's schedule and tried to get to the throne on their own. You've got to let God unfold it. Because one of the most tragic things that can happen is to succeed before you're ready to succeed. That's a recipe for disaster. Did I give somebody Hebrews 6.12? Somebody got that verse. Hebrews 6.12. Faith and patience inherit the promises. Through faith and patience inherit the promises. Romans uh, chapter 5 and verses 3 through 4. 
Mm, we glory in tribulations because we know that even the tough times are making us better and stronger and putting hope into our spirit. Come on, someone. James, uh, uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. The best way to learn patience is through tribulation. And you're like, no, I'd rather take a class. Well, you won't get it. You won't get it. And some of you are like, I should have it by now. Because Lord knows I've been through enough tribulation in my life. I should have some patience. God's working on you. Amen. And everything that happens in our life is going to culminate in his purpose for us. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't be discouraged. Don't let go of your character. Don't get mad at God. Come on now. Stay in the fight and continue because God has a purpose in everything that happens. Amen. The last thing that I want to say is that uh, Joseph, when he had his kids, he had two boys. And how they named their kids was significant to their philosophy of life, to what was happening in their life right then. What was Joseph's two boys' names? Ephraim and Manasseh. Manasseh and Ephraim. Does anybody know what Manasseh means? Manasseh means to forget. What does Ephraim mean? To be double fruitful. To be double fruitful. What's the significance of that? Joseph experienced more pain, heartache, disappointment, probably along the way, resentment against those that treated him that way. But the Bible lets us know in the story here that he names his son Manasseh because he says, I choose to forget all that was done to me. All the hurt that I went through. All the pain of my past. I've decided I'm not going to carry that around as a burden. And I'm not going to let it determine what kind of future that I'm going to have. I am going in this new land, in this new season, I'm going to forget. Because I know if I forget, then I can be fruitful in the new season. Ephraim and Manasseh, their names themselves tell us something about Joseph. That Joseph said, I'm not going to hold on to the pain of my past and let it affect the fruitfulness in my future. Oh, come on, somebody stand and praise him right now. Hallelujah in Jesus' name. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. And i got to ask you a question. The question is, can you let it go? Can you release it? Can you bury it? Can you forgive? Can you forget so that fruitfulness can return to your life. There's a lot of people whose lives are affected by the bitterness that they carry around the rest of their life because of what already happened. It's your choice. Joseph showed us, you got a choice. 
You can either carry the hurt, carry the resentment, and let it affect everything about your life because you cannot contain it. You can't capture it. You can't keep it in a, in, in a barrel or a drum and it not affect the rest of your life. Hurt and resentment, pain, difficulty, uh, disappointment about your past, you've got to manasseh it. You've got to forget it. Because you recognize, uh, hallelujah, that, that God was working all things together for our good. Praise God. Hallelujah. Joseph was able to forgive his brethren completely. Now, he didn't just straight up forgive them. They went through a time of testing because there was a sense, I believe in Joseph, that these people need to process asking for forgiveness. They need to understand because we can't just have like a brittle little truce between us. There needs to be true forgiveness. And they need to recognize what happened in order for, for true forgiveness to transpire. But here, here's, here's the, the, the last question I want to ask you. How was it? <laughs> How was he able to forget? How was he able to forgive? The answer is, in the verse that we read at the beginning, he said, don't be mad at yourself. Don't be upset. I'm not holding it against you because I recognize that what you meant as evil against me. <laughs> God was using it to bring about a great deliverance. It was good for me. I didn't like it when it happened, but ultimately it brought about something good in me. But it was also good for Egypt. It was also good for my family. It was also good for God's purpose for my life. The only way you can truly forget and forgive is to believe that whatever happened, whatever they did, even if they meant bad, God was working it for my good and for His purpose. Yeah, you hurt me. Yeah, you were mad. Yeah, you wanted to kill me. But guess what? I realize now that God was taking it and turning it into something good. How can I hold against you God's plan that was working? Praise God. Come on, let's praise Him right now. Hallelujah. 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 Praise God. Joseph's coat got stripped from him one more time. When they said, hey, Pharaoh's called for you. Shave your face, change your clothes, because you're going into the palace. Praise God. Whatever it is that the enemy has taken from you, whatever it is that life has taken from you, God will vindicate. He'll turn it around if you'll keep a good spirit, if you'll learn to forgive, and you'll trust God. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen. God bless you. You're dismissed in Jesus' name.